This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning Best Selling Taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Welcome back to a Monday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. Another another bad gross storm outside my window right now as we're recording tonight's podcast. But I am joined by another first timer, John Fisher of All About the Jersey. John, good evening. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Chase. How are you doing? Um, it's Monday. It, uh, it was, it was an especially long Monday. I feel like the last couple weekends are, are just blowing by uh, rather quickly. Unfortunately, that's what the summer does for you. You spend all winter going, man, it would be great if it was 80 degrees outside and sunny. And then the next thing you know, it's like, oh, that already happened. We're back at fall. Uh, but I'm in New Jersey, you know, weather here is kind of a trip. Sometimes you get nice weather and sometimes you get nothing but rain, damp, humid air for three, three straight weeks. But see, I would appreciate that. And that's like part of the reason I actually low key love days like this on the weekend, because I end up, um, doing more of what I want to do anyway, less obligation of just being out. Cause you're in your twenties and you're supposed to do that kind of stuff that like an excuse to just be inside reading and watching what I want to do and all that kind of stuff. And just being the gigantic closet nerd that I am. Um, I very, and just, I'm just naturally extremely introverted and that kind of stuff. I, I love it. And the weekends go by slower because I'm doing the kind of stuff that just, it, it, I, I just feel like I've it, it, been reading for four hours. Like reading for four hours seems like a, a lifetime, but going out for four hours, you're like, where, how is it midnight already? I swear I just left. Yeah. Well, they say time flies when you're having fun or doing activities. And typically when you're out, you're hopefully doing both. At least one of them, yeah. at least. So what we, we've learned here is uh, fuck having fun. And we'll just um, uh, just uh, do the whole hermit crab thing and uh, time will go by slower. I think that's what we're landing on here. Well, life is about choices and being an adult is about making those choices and living with the consequences. So, you know, if that's what you want to do, go forth and do it. Speaking of living with consequences for your actions, the New Jersey Devils. Yes. They, uh, they made a very strong action this week. Well, one actually they made two, but one was in the draft. It was an obvious action, I think, even though there was in recent weeks, it seems like there was a 
not a controversy, but more of like, oh, could they go with someone else at number one overall since winning the pick? Um, obviously, they went with the the guy that they went they wanted all along, the guy that we've all been hyping up, Jack Hughes, his brother already in the pipeline in Vancouver, Quinn Hughes. But Jack Hughes is a devil. Could you believe? Like, are you surprised? This is where we're at because I don't think you. I, I'm not sure how Devils fans felt about this, but going into last year, did you ever think that you were ever going to be a serious contender in the Jack Hughes sweepstakes? No, because last season the Devils made the playoffs and everybody right. was excited about, all right, what's going to happen next? You know, Taylor Hall's the MVP. We got Nico Heischer. He's going into his second year. He's still on his entry-level contract, still a cheap contract. Let's make some moves. Let's let's keep this momentum going. And then Ray Shero did nothing in the summer. He signed some guys for the AHL team, and that was pretty much the end of it. Uh, basically, the Devils decided, let's run it back with the same group of guys and uh, – Everything that could go wrong pretty much did go wrong between injuries, uh, Corey Schneider and Keith Kincaid being terrible in net, uh, the defense just getting exposed, the coaching getting exposed. And next thing you know, the team is out of the playoffs by the turn of the year and they finished 29th and people and fans were mad that they finished 29th and not 30th. Uh, they were they yeah. were mad they won two of their last three games of the season. I'm thinking to myself, guys, this team is awful. They tanked enough. You it really could be worse. You could be the Ducks who fired their coach, the oh, yeah. GM went down to the bench, and then they proceeded to win too many games and played themselves out of the Jack Hughes and um, the the fallback option. They weren't even in the the spot for number two. So it just um, they yeah, it was the exact opposite. Where I think they wanted to tank, and then Bob Murray like self sabotaged Bob Murray, the GM, midseason. It's a rare double mess up there. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it it takes certain talents to do the double mess up. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, you got to shoot your shot and sometimes you got to, you know, win the three post cr- crossbar challenge, you know, and that was Bob Murray. So shout out to Bob Murray. Yep. Um, but back to the devils. Um, let's just start here with Jack Hughes. Yes. Was Jack Hughes the right pick? Are you worried at all that the Rangers got the better player long-term? Absolutely not. Okay. And, and this is, this is sort of the point that, as you said, it wasn't a debate. It was a discussion. And I think a lot of it was because, you know, it's very hard in hockey and in other sports that somebody gets named as you're the number one draft pick, you know, in the at the beginning of the season. And then you stay the number one draft pick in almost every draft in professional sports, unless the guy is out of this world amazing. There's always going to be a discussion or a debate, partially because you just need to have a discussion and a debate. It's not much media. You know, there's not a lot of attention or value to just go. Yep, he's the guy done. Let's move on. So do you think that's what it was, was just like manufacturing a um, a one versus two kind of dynamic and that it really was always clear we just needed something to talk about for a couple of weeks or no? I think it was partially manufactured. I mean, don't get me wrong. Kako had an amazing season in his own right. You know, he had, um, you know, he set the under 18 record in Finland for goal scored. He had a great performance at the world championships on a team filled with no NHLers. Well, except for two guys, but they weren't even regular NHLers. Um, you know, he had a great season, but... You know, Jack Hughes skates as well as almost as well as Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby. The guy set records that Patrick Kane and Austin Matthews set. The guy was the straw that stirred the drink on arguably the most talented U.S. national team development program in program history. Like, you know, I'm I'm not, you know, you can't ask for much more than this. Like the guy oozed talent as a 17 year old. And all he did was just show the world that, yeah, I'm the man. Like, I, I don't know if you have to read the athletic, but Corey, yeah, well, Corey Mastisak, who covers the devils, did a, did a, a couple articles on Jack Hughes. And one of them pointed out how Jack Hughes, one of his things he likes to do with practice is to stay at the, 
at the goal line uh, to the side of the net and try to bank shots in off the goalie's head. Like that's not something normal players, you know, or even very good players try to do. That's what special players try to do. And the scary thing is chase. He can succeed. Like we're talking at this level of talent here. So whenever you get the opportunity to take this type of talent, you take the guy, you take this guy. Don't get me wrong. Kako is going to have a great career. You know, he's going to be a very good player in his own right. I don't like the fact he's up, he's with a hated rival, but Jack Hughes, this guy, you know, more than Nico Heischer and more than any other center the Devils have ever drafted, even Scott Gomez, this guy's on just another level. So what was the reaction uh, from fans when um, it was clear that Jack Hughes um, was going to be a devil? Is just everybody excited and just suddenly reinvigorated about the direction of the team and where they're going? Um, was it immediate just like, oh, my God, we got Jack Hughes? I think it was just sort of an acceptance because, you know, there's with some fans, you, you tend to naturally think, oh, man, what if they pick Hack or or God forbid they trade the pick or they go completely off the board like Detroit did it with their first round selection, um, you know. At the draft party, everybody let out a massive cheer when it was Jack Hughes. I think it was just more of an acceptance and a realization, as you said, oh, my goodness, we really did get Jack Hughes, just like we thought we would, but we got him. Like, it's now real. It's now here. And, you know, to see him happy and smiling and, you know, saying, oh, we're really happy. And uh, he's looking forward to start get started. I know the Devils have him running around with the Yankees today. And, uh, you know, he's going to make some other spots around, you know, the area to get used to the area. But, uh, you know, he's a big deal. As I call him, he's the big deal. And I think we're going to find out very quickly why he's a big deal on the ice. So what's the most exciting part about this game Like that people are going to look at immediately? I know you, you talked about his skating, but like, what is it about Hughes specifically, especially in, in contrast with the rest of this Devils roster? Like, What are you going to see right away that are, it's just going to blow people away? Like, oh my God, this dude's incredible. The playmaking. The, the vision. Don't get me wrong. The skating is what really sets him apart. But a lot of that's really technical. Like that's the thing with Sidney Crosby, too, is that Crosby's edge work and his mobility and his effective, you know, his efficiency in motion and how effective he is at moving is really what sets him apart and is how he's able to do all these crazy things like bat in goals in midair and, you know, just make plays that other people see, but they can't like they can't do or they can't time it quite right. Like Jack Hughes is going to be the guy, you know, when he's sailing pucks through the tightest of windows and he's looking finding open devils in plays that you just haven't seen except for maybe once in a while or once in a blue moon. I think that's when people are going to start getting excited about, Oh my goodness, this guy, he's just on another level. Kind of like when Taylor Hall joined the team. And even though that first season with Taylor Hall, wasn't that good. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. Hall was good, but the team wasn't good, but Hall was, you, you could tell immediately like, all right, this guy is in command of the puck. And if he's choosing to make this pass, he's going to make the pass and the other guy's going to get it straight on his stick and they're going to be in a fantastic position to score. And of course, because the Devils were still not that good, they didn't always score. But you got that sense right away. I think you're going to see a lot of that in Jack Hughes. What about the rest of the draft, though? Um, when you look at where they went, I mean, they went defense on several different picks. Oh, yeah. Different, a lot of right wingers. What do you make of the rest of um the draft i'm a little down on the rest of the draft class compared to some other fans like partially because you know at 34th overall a couple of guys from that i thought were gonna be surefire first rounders fell out and don't get me wrong i'm glad they traded the 34th overall pick uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute um they traded down from 55 which i suspect was because they didn't get nick robertson or robert masterson master simone or some other guys that went ahead of 55 which okay i can understand if you're if your guy isn't available trade down get some more guys but i'm a little down on it just because i think between nikita 
Akhatyak, who was 61st overall, Michael Vukojevic, who went 82nd overall, and Case McCarthy in 118th overall. They're basically very similar players. They're both guys that are pretty decent at moving. They carry some size. They love to hit. That's their big thing. They're physical players. They can pass the puck pretty well. But they, all three of them have kind of like similar upsides in terms of, well, if this guy makes it in the NHL, he's going to be a safe, defensive-minded defenseman. He'll be a second-pairing, maybe a third-pairing guy. And you're just thinking to yourself, I get it. In that part of the draft, you know, if you get an NHL player, you should just be happy. But I don't see why you should draft three of the same type of player, at least with the right wingers. You, you give yourself some more chance. You're, you're taking more swings for the fence, so to speak, with Graham Clark and Arseny Grizia. Gritsiak and Nikola Pasek, you're taking more swings. And, you know, if you hit on them, then you're going to get a solid second, third line winger. That'll be a real contributor. I just see that these three guys have limited upsides. And even if they do make it, it's sort of like, okay, you did it, but you could have easily found this player on the free market uh, pretty often. And I think that these types of defensemen are kind of going away in the NHL. I, I, I'm a big believer in drafting more for skill when you can, because skill is what is at a premium. I mean, no disrespect to these three men, young men. I hope they do well, and I hope they prove me wrong. But uh, I felt that there could have been maybe one or two of these guys if you switched them out for a skilled winger or a skilled defenseman or a skilled center or even a better goaltender. Um, I think it would have made the class a lot better. Yeah, and it's interesting, and it's also frustrating because, I mean, I was dealing with the same kind of stuff with the Hawks and, like, having those conversations with, um, I don't know if you're a big NBA guy, but just kind of thinking about, okay, the low upside guys, but the safe picks, and it sounds like it's kind of the same kind of stuff with the Devils because I'm not going to also pretend to have any kind of um, expertise regarding um, a lot of these draft prospects and everything else. So you're just, like, the low um, the, the low ceiling, but, like, they're definitely going to be okay guys are terrifying, especially the earlier you take them because you're like, well, if they turn into what we probably think they're going to be, then cool. But, like, you can find those guys anywhere. And, like you said, with skill and taking – you should always take chances early on. You should never draft for need, and you never know when you're going to need that player. And just you figure the rest out later. You draft for talent, especially in the first round, especially – um, early on because you just things change and you just want to take BPA yeah. usually. And, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's an interesting problem that a lot of teams and franchises run into yeah. across all sports. Yeah. Uh, I, I will give the devils this type of credit though. I mean, the picks I'm just talking about were 61st, 82nd, 118th. And usually in the NHL with the, the hockey drafts, you know, the expected value between those levels of picks are pretty low to begin with. So I guess you could argue that if you're going to pick a quote unquote safe guy, you probably want to do it deeper in the draft um that being said you know i really like the picks of daniel missiel even though you're not going to see him for three years you know he's a big guy but he skates incredibly well and handles the puck well he's a different type of defenseman than the other three i just named and that's sort of what i'm kind of referring to like if you want to get a big hitting physical defenseman with some mobility skills and passing skills great but don't draft three of them draft like one maybe two of them and you know look a little elsewhere to diversify uh, the pool at least with the right wingers you know Gritsiak, Moynihan, Pasek you know they they all represent different levels of skill sets and they can do different things I really love those last three picks by the way I think those are the picks they got great value at those parts of the draft and i think they i have i have more faith in those guys becoming somebody someday than some of the other guys that they picked so again it's not it's not that i'm saying the devils had a bad draft i mean you drafted jack hughes like you can't have a bad draft with jack hughes i i I just hope that they have three or four pretty solid nhlers behind jack hughes so this way we can say this is a very good draft class and not just it's jack hughes and a bunch of dudes which is what's going on with Connor McDavid and Edmonton. Yeah. Or if, if you want to go back further with the devils, the 2003 draft class, which had Zach Parise, who was amazing. Mm, and then yeah. everyone else, you know, I remember as a youngster 
somewhat youngster. Uh, you know, I was excited for the rest of those uh, prospects, and they never really turned out the way you thought they did. And, you know, then you realize, huh, how come the Devils don't have any really good young guys? Oh, they only got one successful pick in 2003 and one or two guys in 2004. Like, you know, this, that sort of stuff catches up with you. But the good news is that the Devils have – they, they, they've had a lot of recent successes at the draft. So even if last year's class or this year's class only yields a couple players, they're not going to be in dire straits. So now that we're post-draft with yes. the Devils, made a big trade that we're going to talk about in a second. But what is their biggest offseason yes. need that has not been addressed yet um, in New Jersey? There are two. The, the, the one is the one that most people say, and the one is the one that I personally believe in. So I'll, I'll give you that. Uh, the first one is obviously more scoring depth on the wings. Um, it, it, you know, Taylor Hall is great, but after Taylor Hall, there really isn't anybody really set for second line left wing. You have a couple guys who can play that position. Jesper Brat has been playing off wing in his time, so you could switch him to the left side if you wanted to. Miles Wood has been playing on that side. Blake Coleman has been a left winger. But none of these guys have had that real that level of scoring talent to be a consistent scorer. You the Devils kind of hope they had it with Marcus Johansson, but between injuries and just his general level of play, it wasn't really working in New Jersey. So, you know, the big thing there is that the Devils can get another winger to really, you know, add to the scoring that they get from Hall, that they get from Palmieri on the right side, that they get from Heischer and presumably Jack Hughes. You know, that's really what they need to fill out the top six and make them a much more dangerous team. You don't want the Devils to be you know, get all excited and then find out you only have to defend one line and hope that the other guys just don't have a very good night. So I think getting going out and getting a Junas Donskoy or Gustav Nyquist or even a Matt Zuccarello, I think should be in their uh, – they should be in their uh, crosshair, so to speak. So that's what the, the mainstream opinion, as I'll call it. Personally for me, they need to figure out what to do with Andy Green because right now Andy Green is 36. He's had a great career as an undrafted free agent. He was awesome five, six years ago, even as as early as four years ago. But he cannot keep taking 20-plus minutes on the first pairing anymore. He just can't. Whenever he's on the ice, the Devils are usually in their own end of the rink. They're not generating a lot of offense. They're constantly having to defend. And even though Green was awesome on the penalty kill last year, legitimately one of the best penalty killers in the league, you're only killing penalties for maybe two, three, two, four, six, eight minutes a night. You know, the other minutes, that's even strength. And that's where Green is getting hammered and subsequently the Devils. So, you know, they made a big trade. So Green doesn't have to be the top guy in defense anymore. And that's a big help. But they really do need to find and figure out what to do with that first pairing left defender because Green's not the guy. Will Butcher, I like him, but I don't think he's ready for the big minutes. I like Ty Smith for the future, but he's not even an NHLer yet, and Mirko Wheeler definitely isn't it. So the Devils really do need to sort that out, but that's a lot easier said than done, and that's something you're going to get in free agency very easily. Yeah, and I I, I wonder what's going to go on here because, like you said, this the Devils are interesting because like they were they picked number one a couple years ago, yeah, and we've already kind of forgotten that that happened, and and he's great. He's, yeah. he's great. He's a first-line center. He's not even 21 yet. He's amazing. Which is good because now you have Jack Hughes and you have more top-end talent, and that's that's a positive thing. Um, but I guess my bigger question with the Devils, and you kind of already elaborated on this a little bit, but ultimately what has gone wrong for them in recent years that have put them in a spot where they're drafting number one overall every couple years or so? Well, before 2017-18 when they made the playoffs that year, it was easy. The Devils were were rebuilding. You know, Ray Sherrow became general manager, and everything about the Devils had to change. And I mean everything, not just 
um, the, the players, but also the coaching staff was changed entirely. The scouting, you know, they got a new scouting director in Paul Castron, who's a lot better than David Kant, uh, who pretty much lost his fastball, to put it nicely. Uh, they had they brought in new analytics people, new video people, new people behind the scenes. So it was a pretty much a complete changing of the organization, which is what was necessary. And that led to some bad hockey teams in 2015, 16, uh, and 17. But it needed to be done. So that explains that. And then 17-18, things weren't well. Hall played out of his mind. He sure was an instant success. Paul Mary was very good. The goaltending was very good, too. And even though Schneider fell off in 2018, Kincaid played out of his mind, you know, in those couple months. And the Devils just kept battling and clawing out points wherever they could. And they they had to survive a very long, hard challenge from Florida. But they survived and uh, made the playoffs. And then, as I mentioned earlier... They did nothing. They did nothing to build off that. They did nothing to improve the team further. They just thought, okay, we'll just run it back and see what happens. And bad things happen. Injuries happen. The goaltender play was awful. Hall was injured. And, um, you know, before you know it, you got half a Bingmanton on the roster and they're losing games left and right. And it's to a point where Devil fans are just like, can we lose for Hughes? I don't want to see wins. I don't want any wins. And it, it's just a massive shock. So last season was just poor but it, it's all part of a larger rebuilding process but in my opinion that really rebuilding process pretty much has to end because hall wants to stay he wants talent and ultimately it's now year five of ray Shero. you know now you got to start showing that all your picks worked out the team is pretty much ray Shero's team only three guys from the previous regime uh, got contracts that are still on the books with the with the devils so all this team and how it's set up is under Shero's vision Shero's decisions now it's time to start showing that, all right, these are good decisions. And I think he made a big step forward uh, on Saturday to really, you know, push push that forward in, in the big trade. Yeah. And one final thing on the Jack Hughes stuff, and then we'll move on to the Subin trade. Um, what, what year? Because like you said, the timelines are interesting here and like having to win now and the makeup of this roster. What year is it when uh, we start talking about Jack Hughes as a Hart Trophy candidate? How many years down the line? <laughs> Uh, let's say, let's say four, because typically is that okay for fans. Can they wait four years? Yes, because he's going to be very good in the three years beforehand. Uh, And uh, you're still going to have Taylor, Taylor Hall won't be 30 and for three more years. Palmieri will be just over 30. He sure will obviously will be in the prime of his career. You know, there's there. And and of course, Subban, as mentioned, you know, he's still going to be in his early thirties. So, you know, by the time those guys are starting to age out, the contracts are ending. This guy, Hughes is going to hit his prime years and it's going to be glorious. Well, let's move on to the Subin trade because that came out of left field. It seems like, um, Oh yeah. I don't know if, yeah. It, it, <laughs> it was just a, a big thing that came across the ticker and you're like, wait, what, what what's going on? Um, yeah. I was folding clothes, folding baby clothes and I saw my phone. I was like, wait a minute, the devils are getting Subin. And I'm like, <gasps> I'm glad I'm done with the laundry and you know, run, run to the computer and start writing about it. <laughs> um, so you were shocked. All Devils fans were shocked. Oh, yeah. Um, why did they do this? Why did the Devils trade for Subin now? Okay. Well, first, I want to take a side sidebar and uh, say that this is one thing I really like about Ray Shero because he spent some time under Lou Lamorello, who I have nothing but love and respect for because he made the Devils relevant. And one of Lou Lamorello's uh, hallmarks is that he never tipped his hand on anything but that he didn't have to. So a lot of his quote-unquote big trades, and Lamorello made some big trades – 
did feel like they were coming out of the left field. And I appreciate that Shero has taken up that mantle. He's not he's not like Edmonton's management where, you know, all of a sudden if the media starts talking about Philip Broberg, you're like, well, we know who the first round pick is going to be because, <laughs> you know, they're clearly using the media to tip their hand. So I appreciate that Shero basically played close to the vest and, you know, it's all you'll find out when it happens. And then this way, it's like a big, massive surprise. And everyone in this case was very, very happy about it. Um, why make this trade now? Again, Taylor Hall made it very clear at breakdown day back in April that this team needs more talent. And the rumor was a rare rumor involving the Devils is that they were in on Jacob Truba. They offered a deal like many teams better than what the Rangers offered. But because Truba wanted to go to New York and the Winnipeg Jets wanted to offer that and the Winnipeg Jets wanted that first rounder back. You know, that's why they picked that deal. So Carlson already resigned an extension. Truba was traded. If you're looking for a top end defenseman that was available, what are your options? And, and you know, all you know is that Subban, you know, his cap hit was it wasn't that Nashville didn't like Subban, but they didn't like his nine million dollar cap hit. And Nashville felt that they need money. They need cap space to go get Matt Duchesne in a cup in about a week or so. So. Apparently, the Devils contacted Nashville and said, look, we'll take the whole cap hit. And other teams were saying, oh, you know, if you retain salary, we'll make the money work. The Devils just said, nope, don't worry about it. We'll take all $9 million. And that apparently sold Nashville on the deal. So you get your big name talent. Hall gets a big piece to play with. The Devils are better on defense on the right side, much better on on the right side than they were. And best of all, they didn't give up anything all that significant to do it, which is the amazing part. Yeah, and it's exciting, right? Like, if oh, yeah. you're a Devils fan, you're you're really you're you're into this. You're into what Shara's doing, and that patience that you've had to have over the last couple of years. You're like, oh, okay. I I think I believe in this front office. If you didn't already, right? Like, there's a lot of sustainability with what they're doing. Yeah, and for the most part, a lot of the trades that the Devils did, like people understood, even if it was like a trade for a pick, you know, like trading Brian Boyle for picks or Marcus Johansson picks, you understood like why they did what they did. But, you know, fans loved, you know, when they got, they traded a second for Palmieri back in 2015, that obviously worked out. They traded picks for Johansson. Okay. Johansson wasn't a great fit, but it fit, it met the needs at the time. Yo, yesterday you get PK Subban, who mind you is not peak PK Subban anymore. Like he's 30 years old. He's not going to be the 24 year old, you know, minute big minute monster machine that he was. But if you're telling me all it took to get him is Steve Santini, who is not at all a surefire in a cheller, Jeremy Davies, who, you know, is a fine prospect out of the seventh round out of Northeastern, but he's just that a prospect 34th overall and hope what will hopefully be a pretty late second round pick in 2020 sign me up. Like, how do you, how do you make, get a deal for a guy this talented, this big of a name without giving up a first round pick or a, an established NHL player? I, it's astounding. Like, even if you don't think PK Subban is all that in a bag of chips, like you can't complain about the price. <laughs> it's it's like if I said to you, "Hey, you want to drive this Ferrari? You may not like Ferraris, but you know all it's going to cost you is three nickels." Like at that point, it's like who cares? <laughs> it's it's a Ferrari for th- fifteen cents. <laughs> yeah, and you just do it, and he just yeah. pulled the trigger, and a lot of GMs just don't like that. It's just one of those things where. It's amazing that it happened at the same time, right? Like something like that, it, it, it's more spread out. But Devils fans had to just kind of deal with both Subban and Hughes. Like that's a lot oh, yeah. in uh, one week. Yeah. And, and not only that, the Devil, it's not like the Devils shorted fans who were into the draft. Like, okay, 34th overall was going to be a big pick. But, you know, at, they traded down from 55th overall and they traded down later again at 91st overall. So they picked, they ended up 
with the day starting with, you know, nine picks to make, they made, they made 10, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. you know, if you're into prospects, you think, oh, you know, is this going to deplete the system? The answer is no, they got guys. I'm you, you, we can quibble about if they, they pick the right guys or not, but they got guys. So they got a massive haul in 48 hours, Jack Hughes, PK Subban, 10 more prospects in the system. You know, you know, I can easily see why so many people are saying the Devils won the weekend because honestly, they kind of did. They made their team that much better. Should we expect any other fireworks or any other big time moves this summer from uh, New Jersey? Oh, there's going to be a lot more activity for sure. Like right now, believe it or not, even with PK Subban's cap hit, which is nine million dollars, and he's going to get paid ten million dollars in salary. So the, that trade also shows that the Devils are willing to spend money. They're still under the cap floor right now. They actually have to spend $4.4 million to get to the cap floor, which they'll probably do with Will, Will Butcher's and Pavel Zaka's new contracts. But there's, you know, they only have 15 guys signed right now. And as I mentioned earlier, they need help on the wing. You know, they, they could use another scorer on the wing. And if they go out and get a Donskoy or a Nyquist or a Zuccarello or, you know, they make a trade for, you know, like, you know, some other players, um, they can definitely do a lot more to add to it. They can't be too freewheeling because they still have to consider Hall's extension. Nico Heischer could get an extension. And you have to start making sure that you're not boxing yourself in for next season so you don't end up in the same situation Nashville is in, which is why they had to trade P.K. Subban. Because after next year, or after this coming season, I should say, they got to give new contracts to Heischer for sure. They have to give a new contract to Jesper Brat. Uh, Vatnin and Green will be unrestricted free agents. So, and Mackenzie Blackwood will need a new contract too. So, you know, that's that's not going to be it's not going to be prohibitively expensive, but it's gonna it ain't gonna be cheap. <laughs> so, who is their worst contract right now? Who on the books is the most albatrossy? Oh. <laughs> uh, I like him. It's a, it's a, this is actually a harder question than you might think. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Travis Zajac being, you know, effectively a third line center at this point at $5.75 million, but he's only signed for two more years. He's got a no trade clause. Um, he's been a lifelong devil. He's, he's useful, but is he 5.75 million useful? I don't know. And Corey Schneider, who was really starting to bounce back in the 2019 portion of this past season, He's 33. He's got three more seasons on his deal at $6 million. If he, if he plays like at least like an average NHL goaltender, you might go, okay, that's fine. But it's still a lot of money for, you know, an aging goaltender that uh, may or may not be surpassed by Mackenzie Blackwood in the near future. In fact, despite adding PK Subban, Taylor Hall and Jack Hughes, you know, if the goaltending stinks, you know, that's going to undercut whatever the devils can do. So there's a lot of pressure, I think, on Schneider and Blackwood to show that they still, you know, Schneider needs to show that he's truly healthy and can bounce back and keep up the momentum. And Blackwood needs to show that uh, he's legit and he wasn't just a guy who had, you know, 10 or 15 really good games with the Devils as a rookie. All right. Well, we have to wrap up here. But one final question before before we go. Um, is this Devils team a playoff team next year? As it's currently constructed, I don't think so. Ask me okay. again. Ask me again. On July eighth. Okay. I think I think they. It's my calendar right now. I think if you ask me on July eighth, depending on what they do, I think they might be. The Metropolitan's going to be a grinder this year. It's going to be tough. Divisions just suck. 
can we just say like how much longer are we gonna do this playoff system i mean eventually one of these teams in the east is going to be like hey uh this is not fair like we have to figure something out well even in the previous system where which i actually preferred because you know who cares about adding divisional games against devils columbus give me more devils rangers give me more devils flyers um you know it was still hard like you know, you have to earn your way to make the playoffs, which I appreciate. You know, I, I'm not a big fan of people who go, oh, they barely made the playoffs. You know, they, they they ain't that good. It's like, no, you have to be good to be 15th or 16th in the league. I think I feel like to be at least among that top half of the league, you got to earn it. And but the difference is, I think the Devils will be a lot more competitive. I don't think they're going to be done by J- January 2nd like they were last season. Yeah. Um, I, it's going to be exciting. And I like the idea that, uh, New York and New Jersey, they have this new rivalry over these two guys and that's going to be fun to monitor over the next couple of years. And I'm sure both fan bases will be extremely rational and um, <laughs> understanding about both sides. Oh, Chase, Chase, Chase. It doesn't matter if they got Hughes or Kak or not. We hate each other regardless. <laughs> you know, it's like saying, well, you know, if Alabama didn't have save it and Georgia didn't have, you know, whatever their current coach that can't handle the program right now, you know, they still hate each other. They still want to beat the snot out of each other in the SEC. You know, it is right. what it is. Speaking of, who is Rutgers coach right now? Is it still Ash? Did he it, it, it's somehow still Ash. And given the buyout and the lack of desire of the university to spend money seriously on athletics, especially football, he's going to be the coach. Okay. There you're, you go. You're excited. My, yeah, you're you're maybe they'll win two games. Mm. Is there a new clerks movie coming out that can distract fans? Well, I think they'll be distracted by the uh, multiple championships won by the wrestling program. There you go. National champions. Yeah, who could forget? Um some of my favorite sports moments involve records wrestling. So We're a Graps University, Chase. Graps University. <laughs> That's so sad. Graps oh. and women's basketball. That's what we do. And uh, Soprano uh, um, cameos. I think that's also. Didn't Tony Soprano go there? Uh, I'm James Gandolfini, excuse me. But I, I'd no, have. To... Wait, Tony Soprano went there for like a, some, a year, right? And then he dropped out. I'm pretty sure that was like the whole thing. Is he went to Rutgers briefly before he left? Eh, you know. I think that's what it was. Well, it's, um, it's a state's university. Everybody comes here at some point. <laughs> there you go. John, this was great. I really do appreciate you making the time. We can read you every day at allaboutthejersey.com. Is there anything that we need to check out from you and anybody else at the site this week? You need to come um, visit us all the time because there's always going to be content at the site. We do this week. We're focusing on uh, pending unrestricted free agents like Nyquist. We had a post on that by Mike Stromberg today. We're going to have a post up tomorrow, I believe, about Dunskoy. We're going to highlight some under-the-radar UFAs. Uh, as we build up to July 1st, and then shortly thereafter, we're going to probably overanalyze the season that was and the season that might be and talk about other things in the off season. All right. We'll go do that. Thank you so much for making the time tonight, John. I appreciate it and uh, have a good rest of the week. And we'll have to check back in after July 8th to see where the, where the devils are at. Excellent. I look forward to it, Chase. You have yourself a good day. Back on the Chase Thomas podcast, I am now joined by Giants.com's John Schmelk. John, good evening, sir. How are you doing? Chase, what's up, man? How are you? I'm good. You're fired up. 9:30 East Coast, and you're you're ready to roll, man. I think we could do a two and a half hour spot if you want. I think you're you're that jazzed up right now. Maybe not that jazzed up. <laughs> no, no, no. That's true. <laughs>
<laughs> I don't know. I, I envy uh, your late night in- energy. I'm I'm 28 now, so I'm I'm essentially washed. And oh, you're I, still, dude. You're still a young man. I I have a two year old sleep upstairs. I don't want to hear anything out of you. <laughs> uh, I'm washed, man. Uh, I'm old. I'm basically 30, and 30 is the new 60, if you ask me. Um, so what does that make so, me at 37? What am I like 75? Essentially, at least <laughs> fair That's enough. Even worse. I don't. Yeah, I don't want to go that dark. That's <laughs> just yet, John. <laughs> um, but you are familiar with a a franchise that uh, has gone through a lot in recent years. They've had some ups and downs. They've won some titles. They've benched their future Hall of Famer quarterback for Geno Smith at one point. There's just been a lot of a lot of weird stuff. OBJ getting traded. Like there's there are so many different avenues that we could take this conversation about the Giants. But um, I think we have to start with. Daniel Jones and from your perspective of what you're seeing, how is Daniel Jones handling New York? Because it seems like coming out of the draft, part of the reason Gettleman liked Jones outside of his senior bowl, uh, his, his senior bowl tape um, is that he was built for New York and that he can handle it kind of like Eli and that he's not going to get faced by whatever he's going to have to deal with over the next 10 years. Um, and from your perspective, how is Daniel Jones handling everything? Yeah, yeah. First thing on, on on the gentleman thing with the senior bowl, you know, people a lot of times shorten that quote and they leave out the first two sentences of it. Where gentleman said, I watched all his games at Duke and I loved them on tape, everything about him. And then he said, when I saw him at the senior bowl, that's when I full boom fell in love with him. People tend to leave out the first two sentences so they can go LOLs, Dave Gettleman. But <laughs> yeah. it isn't like he just watched it at the senior bowl and that's all he saw. But um, look, everything I've seen from Daniel Jones has exceeded my expectations. I, I was just as surprised as everybody else when he got picked at six. I did not see that coming. I thought there was a chance at uh, 16 with their second first round pick. Um, but since he's been there, um, he's, I was at the senior bowl and frankly, he was brutal in practice that week. Balls are all over the place. He wasn't good. And, but in camp, he's been very, very good. And look, it's, it's not against a live rush. Guys aren't trying to hit you and it's not a game situation. So you really, in the end, can't tell a whole lot in terms of how it's going to translate to the field. And what's going to matter is how he plays in preseason games. And if he ever gets into a regular season game this year, but in terms of his accuracy, especially down the field, it's been a lot stronger than I thought it would be. He can make all the throws. His arm strength is, is more than good enough. And personality-wise, and I hate to make the comparisons, I think it's a cheap one and it's an easy one, but in terms of his personality, mannerisms, level-headedness, the kid's Eli Manning. I mean, he just is. And that, I think, is the point you're kind of making where he's built for – the roller coaster that can be New York sports and nothing, none of that's going to bother him. And I do think that's 100% accurate. So what are you seeing though? You're, 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 you're around him and you're like, he's having a good last couple of weeks. Like what did, what did you see specifically? Was it the bootleg that went around social media that <laughs> turned into a 48 yard run? It's all this. They're very easily memeable. I don't know why. Gettleman, <laughs> Daniel Jones, Eli, that whole group OBJ before he moved on. Um, I, I don't know. Like, what are you seeing that you're like, okay, this might be okay. What I was worried about with Daniel Jones when he got to the Giants, I was not concerned with the arm struggling everybody else. I thought it was fine. Is it, does he have an elite arm? No. Does he have a Chad Pennington arm? No. He has a good quality average NFL arm. That's just fine. But the thing that I was concerned about, I don't think he was consistently pinpoint accurate at Duke, especially on his throws down the field. And what's impressed me um, with the Giants so far is that his downfield throwing has been accurate. 
for the most part, he's been on time. Now, he's had some passes where he's late. Maybe he's not seeing what he needs to see. He's throwing a couple interceptions. It's going to happen. But for the most part, his downfield accuracy and even the ability to throw through wind. We've had some windy days out the or outdoors at practice, and, and he's cut through the wind fairly well. It was a nice, tight spiral with high spin rate on it. And, you know, those are things that I wasn't sure about of him coming out of Duke. And now I feel much better about it. So I think he's, I think the kid's got a pretty high floor. The question is, how good is he going to be? I think he's going to be at minimum an average starting quarterback in that Andy Dalton area, right? The question is, how much better can he be than that? And I'm not going to know the answer to that question until he gets into games. So how do the, how, how do the Giants fans feel about it? Because we know the Yankee stuff where he got like booed or whatever. Yeah, um, stupid. Like how how is he i mean how is this fan base dealing with it is that a how it is for everybody or is it just um like where is it at like to the, like when you're around camp and the fans and you're talking to people and you're seeing on twitter or social media and everything else is it are they calming down on the daniel jones stuff have they moved on they're just like all right he's our guy <laughs> like it or not he is our guy we're betting on him being the next eli who knows he might get two more super bowls out of this you never know um are, are they mostly positive or are they still just like wait and see or uh what is it well i sat there on the friday after the draft uh, after the thursday night of the draft when they picked jones and i took phone calls on the air for three hours so uh people were not happy on on that particular day um because every all anyone hears is about what the draft analysts say and none of the most of the draft analysts that said he was not worth the first round pick so Giant fans listen to that. They treat it as gospel. And then when they pick them, they lose their minds, right? So they were not happy. But I think it's gone from acceptance to now optimism. And, you know, I, he's on the team. Even if he didn't like the pick, it's in all the fans' best interest for him to be a good player. It doesn't help anybody for him to be bad because that's going to set the franchise back years. So I think now a large majority of the fan base is hopeful and optimistic. But I think there's still a group that is just, you know, very unhappy with the overall direction. I hear from them every day on, on our call-in show. You know, they, they were mm-hmm. not fans. You know, they're big Odo Beckham Jr. fans, and they're happy that the team traded him. And they're going to have trouble letting go of that, and I understand that. He was a very popular player. But I think eventually, if Jones gets on the field and he plays well, everyone's going to forget that he was the sixth pick in the draft and nobody was happy about it. You know, I remember, you're probably too young, but when Eli Manning got drafted, for two or three or four years, People were constantly complaining, oh, they traded too much to move up to get him. The price was too high. He's not good enough. What were they doing? After he won that Super Bowl, guess how many times I heard that? Zero. Yeah. So (laughs) as as, as long as the kid shows up and plays well, nobody's going to care where he got picked. Yeah. Um, How long before we see Daniel Jones on the field? You know, there are two things that are going to keep Eli Manning on the field, and he has to do both of them. He has to play well, and the team needs to win games. Because if he plays poorly, then if Daniel Jones is doing enough in practice, who knows what the coaching staff does. If he plays really well, but the team gets eliminated from playoff contention, say, you know, late November, early December, and they're mathematically eliminated, why not put the young kid in and give him a chance to play? So the way Eli stays on the field is if if he plays well and the team wins, I think Daniel Jones is going to stay on the bench. Is that what you're expecting? Or do you think, like, if you, what is your gut telling you? What happens? Like, if you had to guess where he is, um, like, what game we see Daniel Jones, if you had to guess, because if they're good, well, like he, said, he, he, here's the problem. This year. Yeah, I mean, here's the problem. We could have a blowout in week five or six, the game's over in the fourth quarter, and we see him then. So if you're talking mm. about what his first spot appearance is, it could be in the fourth quarter of any blowout, good or bad. 
It really could be. So yeah. uh, I think the, the most likely time we'd see him is probably sometime in December. Okay. I'm pulling up their schedule right now just to see when, uh, like, is there a skid? Because if you look at a lot of different team situations right now, um, especially like, I don't know, who was the most recent one where we went through, I think it was the Bucks. The Bucks have a really unfair, ridiculous schedule. Actually, the, 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 the early part of the Giants' schedule is actually pretty not too bad. They have, they'll have, they have some winnable games. Uh, they start with the, they start in Dallas, but then they play Buffalo. They play Tampa. Home, yeah. yeah. They, they, they mm-hmm. play some games that they can win early on in the season. So I, that's why I don't think they're going to pull the plug on Eli as fast as a lot of people think. I think honestly, if they have their druthers, this team's in the playoff race until the end of December. And you see Daniel Jones, maybe in some cleanup duty in a couple of games, but that's it. No, we have to have a mandate that he has to play on November 10th because that's Giants Jets and we have to see Donald versus Jones. Wait, wait I think that's a mandate. I think uh, I'm going to go ahead and institute that right now. Um, if you could use your sway to make sure that uh, Shermer, um, if he has not already inserted um, <laughs> Daniel Jones into the starting lineup so we get uh, we get that because that'd be great. Uh, well, would, you, will, you will quickly see what effect my sway has when none of that comes close to happening. <laughs> I, I don't know. I wouldn't rule it out yet. Um, <laughs> how is Eli? I mean, how is Shermer? Because uh, he's such a quiet guy. He's very different than Gettleman. It seems like in a lot of ways. But um, how has Shermer been with Eli over the last year? What have you seen? Like, is he the right coach for Daniel Jones? Has he been the right guy for Eli? Um, how much of it is it Gettleman being like he's still our quarterback? How much of it is Shermer being like I see it? Um, has Shermer ultimately been good for Eli Manning, and will he be good for uh, Daniel Jones? Yeah, I think Sherman is very supportive of Eli. I think he understands the guy that's been around it a long time, the value of having a quarterback that's always going to get you into the right play, is always going to get the protections right, and knows what he's doing. And I think Sherman really appreciates that about Eli. And I think in terms of Daniel Jones, yeah, I mean, Shermer has been in this league a long time. He's adopted a lot of things from different offenses. He was with, you know, Chip Kelly when, when he was in Philadelphia. He's stolen some stuff from him. Uh, he was at North, was he with Turner for a year in Minnesota? I think he might have been, maybe. But then he was also, of course, uh, a Andy Reid disciple. So he obviously is, is primarily a West Coast guy when you look at his system. So I think he's a good guy. He's patient. He's steady. He understands what it takes for a quarterback to succeed in the NFL. So I do think he's the right person to guide Jones. Has Eli changed at all since you've been covering the team in the last year or two? Like what he's gone through and just to slide and where he was and the kind of person he is, because we like to um, just put our own thoughts on these athletes and everything else, but getting benched in the way that he did in that whole bad McAdoo season and just everything that was going on there. And then McAdoo after he was gone and saying what he did, has Eli just, is he a different guy? Is he, how has he handled all of that? Has he grown more um, frustrated at just father time and things like that? Or has he just been a good pro and he's just, he's not going to go the Brett Favre route like with Aaron Rodgers and stuff. Is he actually going to be someone that works to get Daniel Jones ready for this moment? Cause he does have the connection to the Mannings and all that kind of stuff anyway. But um, have you noticed any change in Eli Manning of just the wear and tear of being on just bad team after bad team and getting his brains beat in and not being the same kind of guy he was a couple of years ago? Has uh, Have you gotten a sense of that at all? Believe it or not, no. I mean, and that's that that's the beauty of Eli Manning. Uh, the, the You know, they call him Easy E because that's what he is. He is the most unassuming, easy to deal with superstar that I've ever been around. The guy's a pleasure. 
He's friendly. He's nice. He's down to earth. Uh, he's salt of the earth. The guy's awesome. Um, I can't say enough good things about Eli Manning as someone to deal with in a person. He's just terrific. He always was, and I can't imagine he's going to change now. Were you covering the team when uh, Gino Smith got the start? Oh yeah, I've been I've been working with the Giants since 2007. I've seen a lot. Okay. How yeah, that's, that look, look, that, 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 that was that was yeah that was that was a really weird week, man. Um, I think I don't want to you know we don't want to rehash it. John Mara has said that it no, could have been handled that better. Never happens. Yeah, I mean, it never happens. Like, a franchise guy, especially in the in football and just getting taken out the way he did and then brought back, like, that whole thing is just, I, I, want, I don't want to, like like you said, rehash that, but I, I've always been interested in someone who was in that building and was around that team, like, what that was like, because it's just, it's so weird. Yeah, it, it, it was not a positive experience. Um, <laughs> I don't think for anybody. I think if everybody, if everybody could rewind the clock and, and, you know, fix that, I think they would. But, you know, it happened. It was what it I was. I think um, would. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, it was what it was. Uh, Eli was very emotional about it. I understand why he made the decision he did. He didn't want to be a guy that just continues a starting streak for the sake of continuing the streak. Um, I get it. He wants to go in there and win games. I understand him not wanting to do that. And frankly, I respect him for it. Um, but look, they moved on from it. And frankly, if you talk to Eli around them now, you'd never know that ever happened. That's that's a good thing, and that's what yeah. you want your quarterback who can just push that to the side and move on. Because I think uh, it might be a little bit different if somebody did that to Aaron Rodgers five or six. Oh, you think? I don't think <laughs> I don't think he would have the same uh, reaction to something like that. Something or, tells me it might be a little bit different. Or Ben um, Roethlisberger or Philip Rivers. None of those guys would like that. Rivers is interesting. I don't know. Um, I I don't know. Rivers is that's a good one. I Roethlisberger. I agree. Rivers. I don't. I don't know. I could see it going both ways. You could tell me on either side of the fence there. Um, biggest difference between Pat Shermer and Ben McAdoo? It's a good question. I feel like Pat Shermer's past experience as someone who's been a head coach really shows because, like I said before, mm. he's just really steady. He drives a steady yeah. ship. He understands how consistency in things like schedules and how you deal with things are very important. He understands the CEO portion uh, of the job. And I think, you know, those are things that he's strong at. And I think those are things that, you know, Ben McAdoo was still figuring out. And I think, remember, he was never a head coach before. He got the head coach before he was hired by the Giants, not at high school, not in college, at no time. So I think those are the things that, that he was kind of figuring out along the way. Interesting. Um, yeah, it seems like it's more going back towards the the Tom Coughlin route a little bit. Um, do you miss Coughlin at all? What, what was he like being um, with the media and stuff like that? I've I've read different reports on how Coughlin was over the years, and he got better. And he had like that whole thing. I forgot. Maybe it was a piece in the Athletic where um, he kind of. Um, no, I remember what it was. Uh, it was um, I had a, ga- a, a guest on a few weeks ago. Uh, I guess maybe it was a month or two ago about. Um, Bob Bob Glauber. Glauber? Glauber? Yeah, Bob Glauber, yeah. Yeah, we were we talking it. about because he's been around that team forever. He knew Phil really well. Great guy. And we were just talking um about just the Coughlin years and stuff like that and how similar he was to Bill Parcells. And the way you're talking about Shermer, it seems like it's kind of like that same kind of field and just uh Coughlin had to kind of adjust and not be as prickly and he did. And he apologized for being that way at the start and got better and um obviously uh, very good coach and won two Super Bowls and everything else. Um, did did you always have positive interactions with Coughlin? Do you miss him a little bit? Oh yeah, I mean, 
mean, Tom was awesome. I mean, he was, he was just a really coach. I got there in 2007. That was the first year he kind of started to soften a little bit. So I missed, you know, army drill sergeant, Tom Coughlin. I more dealt with mm. army four-star general Tom Coughlin, who is not quite as harsh as drill sergeant Tom Coughlin, but look, he, he ran a tight ship, man. Like you were afraid to be late. Um, we would sometimes have to do our radio pregame interview with him at the team hotel. And we would do it after the morning meetings were over. Right. And after then, um, he would go to the, he would go to mass and then we would do the radio interview. Right. The problem is that, you know, he would say, Oh, I'd be there at 11, but if things went quick and early and he was out at 10 30 and you weren't there, it was your fault. So we would <laughs> show up like an hour. We would literally show up an hour before you we were supposed to be there just in case things ended early. Because it, that, that, that was, that was the deal. You, you're not late. You're there early. Everything had to be done exactly the right and proper way. It's just the way coach Coughlin was. And it rubbed off on me because it drives my wife bananas because that's how I act around the house. But <laughs> it, it was just, a, it was just a really interesting and I think constructive way to, to, to run an organization or run a building. It rubbed off on everybody in the building. Everything was done. There was a proper way to do something. That was the way you did it. And it was just the way the entire building was run. And it all came from the coach. Well, then he must be loving life in Jacksonville and all the different uh, guys he's, he's coaching right now. Oh, oh yeah. How that I'm sure he loves Leonard Fournette and Jalen Ramsey. He must love those guys. I mean, he just, it's been nothing but smooth sailing uh, for Tom Coughlin in the management role in Jacksonville the last year and a half, I would say. Yeah, it's been great. God. That that whole thing, Ross Tucker had a really good piece in the Athletic uh, this week about it, where it was just like it's so weird that Coughlin. This group is like the most undisciplined group, and it's this is Coughlin's ship now. And hey, remember, he he's not the coach though. No, he is. He's not. But like that guy is. I mean, he's his handpicked guy. Like, um, he's that's who Coughlin wanted. Like, this is not. Uh, no, that's true too. Coughlin got. He's he's a guy. Like, they're both. Uh, Western New York guys. They're both old school, hard nosed guys. Um, I I don't know. I think Doug Marone is just someone who Coughlin loves, and uh, is kind of like his younger version of him, him, him himself. I I don't know. I think they're those those two are two peas in a pod based on everything I've read about. I think this is a very important year. This is a very important year for Jacksonville. They had the one year where they made the run. They really, if if Marone didn't you know, fold up the 10 offensively in the second half of the game against the Patriots a couple of years ago, they should have went to the Super Bowl that year. And mm-hmm. last year there were, there were, everything fell apart on them. So I think this is a real important year for that program to kind of get back to where it needs to be. But as you look at their cap situation, based on all those contracts that signed a few years ago, that can get dicey real quick. So this is a year where they have to make the playoffs and, and make some kind of run. Is the Giants O-line going to be good enough for this team to compete in 2019? It's the easily forgotten portion of all NFL teams where fans just forget. It's like, well, what's your offensive line situation like? Is it bad? Okay, well, look at the Vikings. Like, Kirk Cousins, when he has time, they're fine. And, like, the Vikings offensive line two years ago was great. We're Keenum and all those guys. It wasn't good last year, and they they just missed the playoffs, and they they weren't good. Well, I can tell you, Giant fans don't overlook the position because that's been the primary reason offensively they haven't been able to be as productive as they've wanted to the last three years. And it's taken a year and change. And I think Dave Gettleman's gotten to the point where the unit might actually be a strength for them. Um, they like, they're having a competition at center. Uh, they really like John Jalapio. They think he's going to beat Spencer Pulley out for the starting job, but it's an open competition and Pulley has starting 
experience with the Chargers. He started a whole year for them a couple of years ago. Uh, they have Will Hernandez, a second-round draft pick from last year, at left guard, who they think is going to be a real good player. Nate Solder, a left tackle. Uh, he's not a Pro Bowl. Pro Bowl, he's never made the Pro Bowl, but he's a very good, solid left tackle who'll get the job done. They got Kevin Zeitler in the Beckham trade, an all-pro caliber right guard. And then they just signed Mike Remmers, who is in a what, Olivia who, Vernon trade. Correct, yeah, but it, it was exactly. eventually it, it was eventually merged into the Beckham trade when it was made official. Oh, was it really? Yeah, interesting. It, it, it ended up being all one transaction, but you're right. That trade it was more of a it was consummated before the Beckham trade in that yeah. negotiation period. But then it was when it was executed at the end, it was actually combined into one transaction. And then finally, you have Mike Remmers, <laughs> who, and then you have Mike Remmers at right tackle, and he's somebody um, that isn't again. He, he's not a world beater, but he's certainly an upgrade over the, you know, Eric Flowers, Chad Wheeler experiment from the last couple of years. So uh, those guys are all good run blockers, and I think that will help Saquon Barkley make some more big plays and then give Eli Manning some time to make some plays down the field too. Well, it's interesting you bring up Saquon because we haven't even talked about it on this podcast, but can, can, is Saquon in that girly zone, or not even girly, because I don't even think girly was able to do this a couple of years ago with Jeff Fisher, but like because they changed the scheme and now he runs a lot more outside zone and he gets out, they actually utilize what he can do, even though his knees are now arthritic. Um, can Saquon succeed regardless of how this offensive line performs just because he's such a good pass catcher and does all this other stuff that like he's just this generational type running back that it doesn't really matter who's under center or who the offensive line is in front of him? Is he that talented or do the Giants look at it of like, okay, um, eventually defenses are going to stack the blocks and eventually it's going to get extremely difficult for Saquon, even as good as he is, um, to make plays um, for this team. Um, wh- what do you think? Yeah, no, no one operates in a vacuum. And look, Saquon will have any level of have will have some level of success, uh, depending on how teams play the Giants. Absolutely, but yeah, I mean his level of success is going to be a whole lot higher if he has a good offensive line around him and the passing game, you know, keeps teams off it, uh, keeps teams honest in terms of putting a lot of guys in the box. So absolutely, the Giants know that they're going to have to, you know, give him a little bit of help if he's going to be that, you know, two thousand twenty two hundred total yard type of back and not get the you know what beat out of him because. You know, he's getting hit behind the line of scrimmage every other play. Absolutely. It's going to be interesting to see what happens here because now you have to worry about the timelines. And I think about this and look at what happens with Gurley now. It's like you don't know how long you have with these running backs before the knees or whatever. It's just a very short shelf life. And paying these guys is complicated. But um, are you at all concerned or the Giants concerned that they're not going to – like they're, it's not wasting Saquon's best years, but also like – understanding that like we need to be good soon because running backs fall off a cliff and you just never know and all that kind of stuff like are they like okay daniel Jones needs to get on the field like he needs to be pretty solid he needs to be in that andy dalton zone <laughs> within two years because saquon will be getting up there in age and if we're giving him all these carries like they gave him last year and you don't really have anybody it's not like the ahmad bradshaw Derek ward brandon jacobs uh triumvirate from years ago it's um i mean it's saquon and um I I don't know. Like, are you at all worried about the force feeding of Saquon over the next couple of years while the team's not good? And then by the time they are good, it's like, oh, well, Saquon's kind of his knees are gone or his back's messed up or whatever. Like, are are you worried at all about the timeline situation between that? I took a real deep look uh, historically with running backs, and you'll usually get a drop off for running backs after season seven, but mostly season eight. So you'll get mm. eight. You'll you know that was Ladainian Tomlinson. That was Emmett Smith. Um, and you'll usually get around eight years or so before the running back either breaks down completely or, you know, instead of being a 15 yard back, he turns into a, you know, 
1100 yard back. You know what I mean? He goes from five yards a carry to 4.2 yards per carry. And that's when you start seeing that drop off around season seven or eight. So like you said, it's all going to depend on, you know, how they play with, with Eli Manning now, and then how quickly when Daniel Jones takes over, whatever that is, you know, how quickly he's able to, you know, be good enough to, to get the team to the playoffs. And obviously Saquon's presence will help that. Um, but look, ideally, would you rather have everything in place and then add the running back later? Sure. Uh, the Giants mm-hmm. weren't in the position to do that. They they thought Saquon was a unique generational running back that was special. And that's why they selected him at number two when they did. Because they simply thought that he was by far the best player in that draft class. And that's what they wanted. If you were in their position, would you have taken Sam Darnold? Oh, yeah. I said that before on the okay. air for Giants.com. Absolutely. Okay. I, I would have too, um, for that reason that you just No, but honestly, I, 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 I'm also a huge fan of Darnold. I loved him coming out. He was my top quarterback coming out. Mayfield was my number two. Um, mm. I can't say I definitely would have taken Josh Allen, and I can't say I definitely would have taken Josh Rosen. I'd worry, I had real concerns about Rosen's injury history, and Allen's yeah. accuracy worried me. So, But uh, Mayfield and, and, and Mayfield and Darnold were my top two quarterbacks last year. Dar- that year, Darnold was one. And uh, Mayfield was too. And frankly, we'll see about Darnold. Right now, there's no guarantee he's going to be a top quality NFL quarterback. We'll see how he develops. Do you think the team will miss Odell a lot this year? What will you notice when you're watching game to game of like, oh, this this would if they had Odell? Like, and that was the other weird thing about trading Odell is just like if you were bringing along a quarterback like Daniel Jones, who if you're in the Andy Dalton mode, this is the exact opposite way of handling that kind of team is that like Andy Dalton's best year of the year. They should have gone to the Super Bowl when he got hurt and they had to start AJ McCarron in that brutal Pittsburgh uh, Cincinnati game was that Dalton had this elite playmaking talent around him everywhere. Like he had AJ green, he had Sanu, he had Eifert, he had all these different guys. He had an elite offensive line. He had just multiple guys out of the backfield. He had all of these different avenues to succeed around him. And the Giants moving on, like that's what makes the Saquon stuff at least somewhat defensible. Is you're like, okay, well, you have the running back now, um, you have an offensive line that should be getting better. You're, the defense is improving, um, but you also have OBJ, where it's like you have a top three receiver just who will bail you out because he's so good at making catches that are seemingly uncatchable. Like when you have an inaccurate quarterback, like that OBJ seems like the perfect guy to have there. Um, and a lot of it too was just like the different locker room stuff, depending on who you read and all that kind of that stuff. I think a lot of it's ever blown, but you're more plugged in than me. So I, I don't know how OBJ was in the locker room and how the coaching staff viewed him and Gettleman and all that other stuff. But um, do you think, I mean, will this team really miss Odell? And do you think it was a mistake ultimately to not give Daniel Jones, somebody like Odell Beckham Jr. for the next couple of years to, to work with and have as like his safety net? I was honestly good with the trade. I know a lot of people weren't. I was fine with it. I saw the offense operated at the end of last year when Beckham wasn't there. I felt those a lot more balanced. I felt like Eli was free to move the ball around a lot more. Evan Ingram did very little for the first 12 weeks of the year when he got healthy and Beckham wasn't there. Ingram had a monster final four weeks of the year, and they're going to need him this year, by the way, to, to, to be a real good player out of that tight end position too. So honestly, I was fine with it. I, you know, are you going to miss – some of those dynamic explosive plays that only a player like Beckham can make. Absolutely. You are. And no one would debate that you wouldn't is the offense ever going to be as dynamic when you're missing a player like that. No, but here's the thing. You're not 
taking Beckham necessarily and adding him to this. If you want to compare this year's offense to last year's, I think the addition of Golden Tate, who obviously is not the same player Beckham is, but he's a very good NFL receiver, the improvement of the offensive line, I think the offense will be just as good as it was last year, if not a little bit better, because of the additions they made to the team, despite the fact they lost Beckham. Yeah, I mean, we're going to see this across the board with certain quarterbacks. Like, Big Ben will not have his safety net in Antonio Brown. Like, it's interesting to see how quarterbacks operate. And it, 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 it's interesting because, like, Michael Thomas being so good in New Orleans. Like, Drew Brees getting up there in age. They're utilizing Michael Thomas. And if you look at those targets every game, like, that's what these older quarterbacks do is they target the, the right playmakers. Brady was doing that with James White and Edelman in the playoff game last year where it was, like, I think they had, like, 20-something targets together in the Chargers game. And it's a lot of it's just matchup, matchup, matchup. And then we're going to figure out where your weakness is and we're just going to exploit that over and over again. Like, the Chiefs did that to the Colts to death. Like, Patrick mm-hmm. Mahomes, like, his only targets were to Tyreek and Travis Kelsey that was it like they weren't going anywhere else like there was a Sammy Watkins sprinkled in there every other play but it that's where they were going they were like this dude until you can stop us until you can prove that you can stop this guy from getting open we're going to keep doing this and Correct. OBJ was in that zone where it's like well you still can't stop him so yes force feeding is not ideal but also that's kind of the the modern game like when Julio gets a lot more targets than other guys the Falcons are better like we know they're better and there's something we said about just targeting your best guys until the other team can make adjustments and stop them. Sure. But I, I do think one of the reasons I think they can survive is that Tate and Shepard can both win one-on-one. Do teams have to game plan for them to put a safety over the top or double them? No, I'd be surprised if, if I saw that on a weekend, week out basis, but if you man them up, they'll beat cornerbacks. They're, they're good receivers. And I, I like the mismatch potential and this is what you've seen the Patriots do, right, with, with Gronkowski and James White over the years. I like the mismatch potential of Evan Ingram, who was a first-round pick, ran a sub-4440 at one point in his college years, and I think ran at the combine like a 442 or something like that. If you can line him up and match him up on tight ends or safeties and motion out Saquon Barkley, get him lined up on linebackers, those are two mismatch positions for you in the passing game that I think you can use to mitigate some of the loss you get from Beckham using the way you're talking about. All right. Well, we got to wrap up here, but how do you think the season ultimately goes for the G men? I think there'll be a better team than last year. Uh, I want to see how things develop in training camp with uh, the young, and, you know, it's funny. We talked about the offense for me. What's going to determine how good the season is, is chase is the defense. Uh, will they get I a like pass it. rush? I like Julian Love a lot. DeAndre Breaker didn't allow a touchdown in two years in college. Like, yep. He's going to be really good. Dexter Lawrence should be good. Um, mm-hmm. Interior. The linebacking stuff, I'm a little concerned. I wouldn't say that's their strength, but I like their back Their back four. I like who they're going to be able to throw out. Janoris Jenkins is Mr. Solid. Like I like a lot of these dudes. I like him too, but young corners, especially early in the year, you're going to have some mistakes. And young corners will, will give us some big plays. They can be, and I'm with you. I love Julian Love. I thought he was a second round value they got in round four. DeAndre Baker, one of the top cover corners in the draft. I think both guys are going to be good players. Janoris Jenkins is a very good player. I like Jabril Peppers. I think he's going to be um, a real good safety for them. But young defensive backs make mistakes. The question is that how much of those mistakes going to hurt them? And can the other players make up for those mistakes a little bit? Number two, they don't have a guy that's going to get you double-digit sacks. At least you're not sure about it. You know, Marcus Golden, they brought in he tore his ACL a couple years ago after he had 12 and a half sacks. Can he get back to form? Can Lorenzo Carter in his second year kind of step up and, and be a steady pass rusher? Can uh, O'Shane Zimenez, their third-round pick, 
step in there and get you some pass rush. So if you're going to succeed defensively in the NFL, you know the deal. you got to be able to stop the pass, right? If the Giants can figure out a way to do that defensively, whether it's with their young secondary or with their pass rush, I think this team can be a 500 football team, be in the mix for the playoffs in December. But it all depends on how that defense performs trying to slow down opposing passing attacks. That, that to me, is what this season is going to be all about. All right. Well, it's going to be fun. I'm interested to see it. At the very least, they're going to be interesting. I I think Daniel Jones is going to be appointment television as we watch and how this all works out for this group. Um, John, is there anything we need to check out on Giants.com or anywhere else from you this week? Yeah, you can check out all my work on Giants.com. We're doing a feature 30 questions in 30 days heading into Giants training camp. We also just launched a new uh, podcast, The Giants Huddle. It's from the Giants. I actually sat down with Daniel Jones for a 20-minute interview. Uh, last week okay. so you can check that out it's on giants.com or go to any of your uh, podcast platforms you can check it out it's called the giants huddle um we're, we're gonna have Brandon... what was the most interesting thing he said or second most we'll leave the most interesting to the podcast listeners but give me the second most interesting thing he said he went into how he goes about learning an offense and what his learning methods mm. are and kind of how he uh, ingest the playbook and then try to transfer it onto the field. We, I tried not to ask a lot of those basic questions. You've heard the same answer to a million times. And I got into mm-hmm. real heavy football stuff, like learning the playbook, making reads, um, things of that nature. So uh, th- that was the stuff that I thought was the most interesting from Daniel Jones. Awesome. Well, go check that out. Thank you so much, man, for making the time. Um, I know it's late, but I, I appreciate it. And uh, we'll have to do this again soon. Absolutely. And by the way, I'm, I'm going to be selfish. I also do the Knicks stuff for WFAN. So if you want to check okay. it out, free agency starts next week. And I'm going to have a lot of mm-hmm. good stuff on FAN.com on the Knicks and also uh, my Knicks podcast, which is called The Bank Shot. Make sure you check that out as we kind of get ready for free agency next week. Oh, God. It's going to be my – I don't think it's going to go well. Uh, no, it is not. It is absolutely not. But, but, no. but come on. We're the Knicks. We're used to it. It's okay. I don't think they were used to it. I think people actually like talk themselves back into the Scott Perry, Steve Mills group and that Dave Fisdale going and sitting courtside for the Durant games and stuff like that. Well, well, well here's, 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 here's the thing that stinks. going to work. Here's, here, here's the thing that stinks about it. I honestly, and no, I was never sold on it. And my quote, you can look on my Twitter timeline. I will believe Kevin Durant's a member of the next one. He's standing at the podium holding up a jersey next to James Dolan. But if he does not tear his Achilles, there is a very legitimate shot. He's signing a contract with the Knicks next week. But in classic Knicks fashion, with no luck ever, he tears his Achilles in the NBA Finals, and uh, everything's going to go to you-know-what. The good thing, though, is that they've actually prepared themselves with multiple first-round picks coming up. They have some young players they like. So if they have to continue the, the slow build, they can. This isn't a situation where they've kind of sold off all their future picks and they've mortgaged their future. So on the bright side, all hope won't be lost after they'll be disappointed next week when no free agents go to New York. Well, at least they still have their young building block uh, center who fits the modern game for the next couple of years to to help R.J. Barrett transition. Uh, yep, absolutely. Mitchell Robinson. Oh, my God. Uh, yes, Mitchell Robinson, the future of New York. Mitchell Robinson, R.J. Barrett. Go ahead and start printing those playoff tickets, folks. Um, <laughs> I would hold off on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> John, thank you so much. Talk to you soon. I appreciate it, man. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate it if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, 
Google Play or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out chasethomaspodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.